this passage of Scripture, this set of texts, I think has what is without a doubt, in my mind, the most controversial um, statements regarding women in the New Testament, maybe all of Scripture. Um, you come towards the end of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 11. Uh, it says, Let a woman learn in silence with full submission. I permit no woman to teach or have authority over a man. She is to keep silent. For Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived and became a transgressor. Yet she will be saved through childbearing, provided they continue in faith and love and holiness with modesty. Now, I've been in the church uh, all my life. I've yet to meet somebody who's mem- like memorized those verses as like their life verse, you know. And I've yet to see anybody that's got that sort of like tattooed uh, to their body. Um, I'd be afraid to meet that person if you want to know the truth. Um, these, past, these verses have very little to do, in my opinion, with what I perceive to be the main message of this text. I think they're important for Paul's situation. Um, and so I guess what I'm saying is we're not going to deal with these verses, uh, but I felt it cowardly to completely like sidestep them and say, yeah, that's there. Go figure that out. So I want to give a few comments about them up front here so that way we just sort of get them behind us because I think it's important we understand that these verses have to be put into their context. We can't just sort of like take those out and, you know, sort of like be like, yeah, see, that's how it's supposed to be. I mean, if so... If a woman is to be silent this whole time, I mean, then, I mean, I'm looking at a bunch of women, sinful women, women just living in sin because you came in here and most of you haven't talked, like, stop talking, I mean, you know, since you came. So, I mean, you're clearly living in disobedience to this passage. So we're going to have to figure out what does this all mean? Well, let's deal first with this issue about women being saved through childbirth. Well, we're not entirely sure what the heresy is. It is very, very clear, according to 1 Timothy, that there's a heresy that that concerns childbearing loose in the Ephesian church. Uh, We see here and also in 1 Timothy 4.3 that there are people teaching uh, in 1 Timothy 4.3 that you shouldn't be married. Now, for us today, the idea that you shouldn't be married may have little to do with whether you should have children, uh, which is a serious breakdown in our culture and society today. But in Paul's day and age, if you weren't married, you weren't going to be having kids. And so there is something that is going through the church that that people are teaching that you shouldn't be married, you shouldn't have children. There's sort of this, this asceticism that is just sort of creeping through. And we know this was something that did trouble the church kind of early on. And so what I think is happening here in, in 1 Timothy 2.15 is that Paul is countering this heresy, uh, this heresy which forbids marriage, forbids having children. And what he is saying with great enthusiasm and I think some hyperbole, he is saying, no, 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 it's a good thing to, to be married. It's a good thing to have children. Uh, it, it, this is good. And so I think that's part of what's going on there. The second issue about women being silent in the church uh, we have to look at this passage uh, in contrast and comparison with Paul's other writings. We know that Paul writes to the Corinthian church. And to the Corinthian church, Paul tells the Corinthian church that it's okay for a woman to pray in church. And it's okay for a woman to prophesy in church. These are activities that require speaking and not being silent. He says it's okay for you to do that there in the Corinthian church, provided you do so with, with some respect. 
Um, but here he says to the Ephesian women, you've got to be silent. Uh, if we put these two things together, we've got to realize that there is a unique set of circumstances that pertains to this church. Uh, what is it? Is it that Paul likes the Corinthian women better than the Ephesian women? No, I don't think that's the case. I think there's something else at work. One guess we can sort of make sort of based on history. We know that the church in Ephesus was surrounded uh, by female priestesses from the temple of Artemis, which was right there in their community. And it seems very likely to most people that these women who had been leaders in their pagan church are now coming over into the Christian church and are probably trying to assume similar leadership types of roles. And so what Paul is saying to these women here in this church is that they need to be silent. uh, And he says, and you need to learn. You need to learn. And even that statement, while it seems regressive to us, is actually very progressive for Paul. Uh, The Jewish rabbis did not think teaching uh, the women the law, the Torah, the Bible was a good idea. One rabbi is quoted as saying it would be better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. And so Paul here, being a little more progressive than we might give him credit, says that, listen, for right now, what you need to do is learn. So all of this out there, I'm hoping to just sort of introduce you to this idea that there's a little more background to this text than we would maybe get at first glance. Um, As a supplement to what I've just said, uh, I have printed for your reading an article from the Christian Standard called, uh, titled, Should Women Preach? It's written by Matt Proctor, who's the president at Ozark Christian College. It is on a set of two lilac sheets, lavender, um, over at the welcome desk. If you go pick those up, it is sort of a, a catalog of Ozark Christian College. Their faculty spent a whole semester trying to figure out this verse and the findings that they had. Very interesting, very informative. I'd love for you to read it. And then if you've still got questions, I would love to talk with you about this. I'm not afraid of this subject. It's just not one that I think I want to spend all morning talking about here today. All right, that said, let's pray and then we'll get into it. Gracious Lord, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word, which is living and active. And Lord, even though it was written uh, so long ago, I know, Lord, that even this week it's challenged me. And I pray that now as we all as a church come together to encounter it, that, Lord, it would challenge us as well. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. All right, so we're in this series on spiritual leadership. And if I were to ask you, what is the number one quality, trait, or characteristic of a spiritual leader, what would you say? Well, I did ask this on Facebook this week, and here are some of the responses. I'm going to try not to drop this. All right. Here's what we got. Number one quality or characteristic of spiritual leaders, that they listen. That sounds good. Um, That they have grace. Sounds good, too. That they live it out. They lead by example. Yeah, that sounds good. Discernment. That they serve from the trenches. They walk the talk. That they would be leading unbelievers to the love of Jesus. They lead with humility and gentleness. They would lead by example that they would listen to those they lead, that they would listen to God. One person here said uh, that they would pray for their followers. Uh, All of these are good observations. This morning, I want to ask this question. What is it that Paul would say is the number one characteristic of a godly leader? 
Now, Paul, I think, is an expert on this subject. He plants more churches. He disciples more elders. He writes more books in the New Testament. He uh, writes a book on leadership that we call 1 Timothy. And here in chapter 2, we see what it is that Paul says is the number one job of a spiritual leader. Let's look here at the text, 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. He says, first of all, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, and intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions, so that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and dignity. I think Paul would say, first of all, godly leaders pray. Godly leaders, first of all, pray. Now, prayer is a unique activity. It is something that when we do it, we do it for the benefit of God alone, or we ought to do it for the benefit of God alone. It's where we cease doing everything else, and we say, you know, I'm going to dedicate this time, I'm going to dedicate these thoughts, I'm going to dedicate this amount of of my thought capacity to God and communicating with Him. I'm going to surrender myself to who He is, and I'm going to pray, and I'm going to listen. It's there in prayer that we put God first. I will tell you that if you aspire to be a godly leader, then you ought to be a person of prayer. Before you make a decision, you should pray. Before you go talking to somebody about something, you probably need to be praying. You need to pray before you teach. You need to pray before you make a decision. You need to pray often. And you need to do it first in all situations. But I will tell you that as somebody who is also an aspiring godly leader, that it is one of the hardest things to do. You know, you come into the office and you see that little red circle of of numbers. Oh, you've got this many unread email messages and that phone is flashing at you because there are people that have left messages and they want to talk to you. And there's sticky notes on your door because somebody stopped by and there's a hundred other things that you could be doing. And if you're anything like me, you sort of get this thought, you know, I need to pray, but you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to deal with all this other stuff first. And if I deal with all this other stuff first, and what I'm really going to be able to do is I'm really going to be able to focus on praying. But then when you start doing all those other things, what ends up happening is you find you have no time left to pray. And that's kind of how life goes. Randy Garris in the Christian Standard, he writes this for elders, but I think it's, it's relevant for all godly leaders. He says, prayer is a quiet, non-demanding thing. Seldom does prayer corner you in the foyer after service and demand that you do something about the music or the youth or the preacher or the parking lot or the nursery situation or fill in the blank. Someone or something will keep your life active as an elder, but it may not always be prayer. If we are to be people of prayer, we will need to be the ones who pursue it. It is easy to forget and neglect the main thing. It happens all the time. Sometimes it results in tragedy. Drivers should, not drive, should drive and not text. Train engineers should remain awake and not fall asleep. Babysitters should watch children and not TV. And elders should be men of prayer. Friends, that is true. Prayer is the most important thing that as spiritual leaders we can be doing. And I think often it is the most neglected thing that we fail to do. You know, we say, oh, I'll pray for you. Or I, I, I was thinking about you this week. Or, I, you know, I, I meant to pray for you this week is really what we mean to say. Oh, yeah, I, I want to pray for you. I'll pray for you. I did pray for you. And really, I think sometimes 
Like if there was sort of like that divine voice, there might be something like this. Like be like, liar, you are lying. I've been listening to you all week. You not once did you pray for this person. We like to be people that talk about praying. We like to be people that talk like we do pray. But the question is, are we praying? Paul says, don't, don't tell people you're praying for them. Pray for them. Pray for those people. Pray for them. If you're going to be a godly leader, then it is important. A primary task, the primary task, prayer. It's critical. What do we pray? Well, we pray for everybody, even unpopular leaders. That's what Paul gets at here. He says, I want you to pray, intercede, thanks, give, all these things for kings and all who are in high positions. You know, we're good to pray for family. We're good to pray for friends. You know, we're good to pray for maybe those people at church when we think about them. You know, we might get that prayer list and the email, and we might spend some time to pray for that. But, but often it stops there. We don't like to pray for people we don't like. We don't like to pray for politicians we don't like. You know, but Paul here is saying, I, I want you to pray for everybody, even politicians, kings, everybody in an unpopular position, all these people in authority. I want you to pray for them. He says, I don't want you to have a self-centered prayer life. I don't want you to just pray for the things that interest you. I want your prayer to match my prayer for the world. Now, as I say this, I know there's some of you here thinking, man, I just, you know, the thought of praying for President Obama, I just, whoa, whoa I don't know about that. Or, or praying for Mitch McConnell, I don't think I can handle this. You know, let me tell you, if you think praying for a senator or a president today is difficult, put yourself in this Ephesian church. And imagine when Paul says, hey, remember Nero? You know that guy that's on your money, that's lighting your brothers and sisters on fire, that's persecuting people, that's throwing them to the lion's den, that's putting them out there in the Colosseum? You know that guy? I want you to pray for him. Let me tell you, that's going to be ten times more difficult. And yet I know that we fail to pray for our civic leaders. I can tell this by the amount of uncivil and hateful speech that many people have as they talk about politics. Oh, I hate this guy. I hate this person. They've done this. They've done that. They've ruined this. They've ruined that. This is the reason that America's going the place it's going so quickly. They're the incarnation of the devil, and we can go on and on. And I hear that talk from Christians, and it's real clear to me that we're not praying for our civil leaders. If we were... I suspect we would have more civil conversation about it. And Paul says, I want you to pray for them. I want you to pray for these people. Why? He says, I want you to pray for them so that we can live peaceable lives in all godliness and dignity with civility. He continues here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, talking about this peacefulness. He says, this is right and is acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God, there is also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. For this I was appointed a herald and an apostle. I'm telling the truth, I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Paul says we need to pray for peace so that we can peacefully spread the gospel. That's what the peace is for. Now, I know sometimes as believers, you know, we're glad to have peace in what we call here in America domestic tranquility. We think of that phrase, it, it conjures up a vision of us standing in our front lawn, watering the dry spots, yelling at drivers that are going too fast down our street. You know, that's sort of like the epitome of domestic tranquility. 
And we're often satisfied to stop there. But Paul is less concerned about your fescue, and he's a little more concerned about the harvest of the kingdom of God. Jesus said in Matthew 9, 37, he says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into his harvest. Friends, we're praying for peace, not so that we can be comfortable, not so that we can have a well-manicured lawn, but we're praying for peace so we can spread the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul is in a culture and a time where it is socially unacceptable and in many places kind of illegal to do this kind of thing. And he's saying, listen, what we desperately need is peace so we can tell one more person about Jesus Christ. He says, I want you, church, to pray for that. I want you to pray for peace so that way the gospel can go forward. And I'll tell you, that's relevant for us today as we pray for Christians in Iraq and Syria and all these kinds of places. We're praying for that, not so that way their life is easy, but that they can be effective in sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ. All of this sounds really good. So how do we get about doing it? Paul's got some ideas here on how we might be better people of prayer through eliminating some distractions that get in our way. The first is this. We need to surrender ourselves to God. If you're not real great at your prayer life and you've struggled with it, I would think maybe one of two things are at work, and I would think they both are addressed here. The first is sometimes we do what James talks about. We, we have these selfish prayers. We pray for the wrong things with the wrong motives, and we want it for the wrong reasons. You know, it's interesting to me, Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, before he even prayed for our daily bread, what did he say? He said, Lord, your will be done. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. But before he asked for the grace to receive his next meal, he said, God, more than lunch or more than dinner, what I really want is for your will to be done. I think that Paul is getting at this. He says, we need to surrender ourselves to God in prayer. Uh, this is sort of that, that... Let's look here at the text. First Timothy chapter 2, verse 8 says, I desire then that in every place the men should pray, lifting up holy hands without anger argument. Now, this is the traditional Jewish posture of prayer. Now, today, if we're going to pray, we know like this is prayer. And you see somebody in a restaurant doing this, we know they're praying. But the Jewish folks at this time would have lifted their hands and prayed. That's how they would have prayed. Now, this, this symbol you know, of lifting your hands, it, it connotes several things. But one is surrender. You know, we, we have this still. Uh, surrender. You know, Paul says, I want men everywhere to be surrendered to God in prayer. Surrender. Not, they're not angry. They're not arguing. They don't have their own agenda. They are surrendered. These are people that are surrendered to God in prayer. They're sold out to God in prayer. And so perhaps maybe your problem isn't that you're not surrendered to God's will. It's just that you've not sold out to God in prayer. You've not surrendered everything to God in prayer that way. I think sometimes we talk about prayer life the way we talk about losing weight. You know, oh man, I'd like to, I'd like to have a better prayer life. You know, after Dancing with the Stars is over, I'll have so much more time. Oh, my gosh. I just will. It's really like working out. You know, you see those people, like, jogging as you're driving home in your car, and you're like, yeah. You know, I could jog this quarter mile from the office to my house. Yeah, I'll start that tomorrow. Or you're, out, you're looking at your window, you see a jogger come by, and you're like, wow, that looks great. They're getting their sweat on. I bet that would be good for me. And so you go grab yourself a bag of potato chips and you, you open it up. 
you watch football, these are men that have, you know, trained and they're fit and they're physically active and strong. And you're watching football and eating, you know, cheese dip. And you're like, man, I remember when. I'm going to get there again someday, so help me. I will. Start now. This is carbo-loading. And we, we lie to ourselves. We really do. We, we talk about it and we're like, oh man, yeah, I'm totally going to be fit. I'm totally going to be there. But we don't do it. And then six months or a year goes by from our New Year's resolution. We're like, why am I even fatter than when I started? It's because you weren't serious about it. And the same thing's true with prayer. Why am I not a better prayer? Because you're not really trying. Really, you're not. If you want to succeed in prayer, you've got to surrender yourself to God, all of you, and get serious about it. Uh, There's another piece about this. If you want to have a better prayer life, you need to live in peace and integrity with others. One of the things about lifting hands in the Old Testament is is it quickly reveals how clean your hands are symbolically. You know, know, if, if, if we all put our hands up, we could kind of tell... You know, if like, oh, you're a mechanic, you're a painter. I mean, we could sort of figure out some of those kinds of things pretty quickly, just based on your hands. God talks about this in Isaiah 115. He says, when you stretch out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. He says, you live with great guilt in your life. If you want to have a better prayer life, walk in integrity and grace with others. That's one of the things this is getting at. Paul says, I don't want you to anger, have anger. I don't want you to be getting in fights with each other, man. I want you to live in peace with each other. Because our relationship affects how our relationship with God goes. This is why Jesus taught, he says, listen, if you go and you're wanting to make a gift and you're going to lay your gift at the altar and you remember that you and your brother, you've got something between each other. He says, you, you, get, you forget the gift, you go reconcile. You work it out with them, and then you come back. Paul says the same thing. He said, listen, I want you to live in a place of integrity and in peace with each other. So that way you can spend your time praying for the things of God instead of this constant repentance and guilt that can plague us. Paul wants a unified, reconciled, peaceful people gathering and praying for peace. Why? So that the gospel can be spread. Now, so far we see that Paul's been talking to the men you follow, if you're real good with those pronouns, he, she, you know, those kinds of things. We see that Paul's been talking to the men. But it would be foolishness, ladies, for us to assume that Paul only wants men to pray or he only wants men to get along with each other. It's all right for you women to be angry with each other and to argue and to fight. But the men, you can't be fighting. Women, that's fine. Men, not fine. We're not so foolish as to think that there's sort of this duo ethic here. I think the same is true when Paul starts to address the women. Verse 9, he says, Also that the women should dress themselves modestly and decently in suitable clothing, not with their hair braided or gold, pearls, or expensive clothes, but with good works, as is proper for women who profess reverence for God. I don't think God here is commenting on hairstyles he finds suitable or, or, you know, God... God, he likes it, you know, down and or half down, not, you know, you know, not braided. You know, he's not a big fan of that. Pigtails would be okay. Um, you know, I don't think that's the issue. I think what Paul is getting at is that we need to adorn ourselves with righteousness in good works. In other words, if I could say it differently, I would say you need to practice what you pray for. You need to practice what you pray for. Now, Paul's addressed men and women a little differently. 
Maybe in the Ephesian church, the men were having a harder time getting along. Maybe they're arguing. Maybe they're getting in fights with each other. And Paul says, listen, he calls them out. Maybe in the Ephesian church, unlike women today, maybe they were spending a little more money on their clothes than the men were doing. Actually, you know, we find out that that's actually not true today. Women also still spend uh, more money than men do on clothes. Bureau of Labor Statistics. This is just a little tidbit. This is for free. You don't need to remember this. (laughs) Women outspend men annually for clothing and shoes, $222 annually. There you go. Couple that with the amount of money women outspend men for personal care items and services, makeup, haircuts, etc., you add that, that's 329 You get together, 551 So apparently, it's still an issue. Who would have, who would have guessed that? <laughs> but, anyways, moving on. That's really not what the text is about. The, the text isn't saying, women, you've got to stop you know, wearing makeup, you've got to stop this, you've got to stop that. Uh, the text is really not all that concerned, I don't think, with it. The text is more concerned with where you think you start becoming attractive. Paul says, listen, you could you know, go get yourself a facial and a spa day and makeup and hair and the whole nine yards, but it's going to become real apparent real fast, ladies and men, what kind of person you are on the inside. You, know, you spend enough time with somebody and you will figure out who they really are. They may look good on the outside, but on the interior, they're full of ugliness. We've all met those people. And Paul says, listen, Ladies, and, and we can go ahead and say men too, don't think that just because the exterior looks good that the inside does as well. Paul says if you're going to invest some time, effort, or money into making yourself look good, make yourself look good on the inside rather than the outside. There's an old saying that says you can put lipstick on a pig and it's still a pig. Paul says let's not put lipstick on the pig. Let's change that. Let's have some inner transformation. And that's what prayer does. Prayer gets beyond all of this. Prayer gets beyond the exterior because it has us surrender our lives to God. As we surrender all of us to who He is, it starts to bring healing in our relationship. If we take this seriously and say, you know, I'm not going to approach God while I've got something with my neighbor. And it starts to reconcile and has this entire renovation on our interior It calls us to good works, and all of a sudden our life is adorned with the things that God wants them to be adorned with. But that only happens when we start to practice what we pray for. You know, often we pray, I think, sometimes like a casual laundry list of things we should be concerned about but are not willing to do anything about. God, help those poor orphans in Africa because goodness knows I'm not. God, help my brother-in-law because nobody else can. God, help this person. Help my co-worker, because I'm not going to do anything for him. And we start to sort of just kind of mention like, oh yeah, I prayed for him. Can't do anything about it, but I prayed for him. I don't think that's the way it ought to be. When we pray, we have to realize that we are not just praying that God would send workers into the harvest field, but lo and behold, we are workers in the harvest field. Ronald Rollheiser puts it this way. He says, when we pray through Christ... More is involved than merely asking God in heaven to make some kind of intervention. The community, too, and we ourselves must be involved, not just in the petition, but also in trying to bring about what the petition pleads for. Hence, if my mother is sick and I pray that she gets better, but do not drive her to see the doctor, I've prayed as a theist, not as a Christian. I have not given any incarnational flesh, skin to my prayer. 
it is more difficult for God to answer such prayer. Friends, our lives should match our prayers. We should be surrendering ourselves as tools to work for the peace we pray for and, and as tools to share the gospel that we're asking God to spread. And so that's my challenge, is that we would be people that practice our prayers, that we would pray for peace and work for it, that we would pray for the gospel to spread and that we would share it, and that we would be people who put God and His priorities first by praying for them. Friends, let me tell you, this, this week I've been thinking about this text, I've been thinking about prayer. I'm going to give you one more thing that maybe you need to have if you're going to try to get your prayer life under control. You're going to need some sort of system to keep you accountable. As I've been thinking about this this week, I've thought about my own prayer life. And, you know, there's times when, man, it's great. And there's times when it's not so great. There's times when it's real intentional. And there's times when it's sort of haphazard. And I started to think about what is it that makes it a little more successful than others, if I can use that word. And and I I realized, you know, the times when I actually spend the time to, to engage a text and then just kind of jot down a sentence about it, just a quick journal thing. That really helps me. And it allows me to sort of be accountable because then I, you know, I look at that and I realize, oh my goodness, it's been you know, like a week since I've sat down and really did this intentionally. And it reminds me of that. I also thought about it. And for me, I thought, you know, I, I normally read my Bible uh, electronically somehow. And I thought, you know, I, I have, I've had this great luck doing it on my computer. Now, I sort of I hate that because I like the nostalgia of cracking open the good book and, you know, flipping through and write. You know, that's great. But, you know, if you're like me, you get 15 minutes in the morning of quiet before it all breaks loose. And, man, you want to make the most of it. And so I would challenge you to find a way that that works for you, that allows you to to hold yourself accountable, whether it's through a journal or whether you get yourself a prayer partner and say, you know, I'm going to pray this week and I want you to... Just, we're just going to check in with each other and talk about how are we praying. Or you go to maybe the men's prayer group or the women's prayer group and, and you use that as an opportunity for you to find other people that are like-minded and encourage each other towards prayer. I, I tell you, I think it's important we get this down because I think Paul meant it when he says, first of all, if you're going to be a spiritual leader, you've got to be people of prayer. Let me pray right now. Gracious Lord, I, I know that this has been a difficult thing for some of us to sort of consider. Lord, it shouldn't be hard that we spend time in prayer. But, Lord, often it is. And so, Lord, today I just pray for all the believers that are here that are just sort of convicted and and struck by this text as as I've been. And, Lord, I pray that you would give them some sort of insight into how they work and and how they can take their prayer life and and be serious about it. God, I don't want to be that person that's saying, yeah, I'm going to pray, you know, later. Lord, we, we want to be people that do it, committed to it, not, not lie to ourselves or to you. So, Lord, give us the grace and the strength to do that. We pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. And this morning we come to our time of decision. And we, and we do this every week, you know, where we invite you to come and, and make a response to what God's doing in your life. I, I want to do one other thing here before we sing the song and come to this time. we're going through this thing in spiritual leadership. And we're doing this because I think it's important we talk about spiritual leadership. And among the elders, we've been talking and praying about how do we grow in our church another generation of faithful, godly men who are spiritual leaders. And so sort of coupling on to this idea, I want to maybe broaden our invitation here uh, to include something for just the men. We're calling the forum. Uh, this next month, we're starting a thing called the Spiritual Men's Spiritual Leadership Forum. 
And what our heart is, is we want to invite men. It's going to be a small group of maybe about 10 guys or so that would come and share together. We've got a study we're going to go through. We're going to meet 90 minutes a month. And we're going to just encourage each other in spiritual leadership. We've got some old guys that are coming who've got some great experience. I want to make sure we've got some young guys coming. But the whole purpose is we just want to share and encourage each other towards being deeper uh, leaders, spiritual leaders. And so I will tell you right now, if you commit to this, we're asking for a three-hour-a-month commitment. It would be 90 minutes in a meeting where we'd come together and share. Uh, I'm going to facilitate that discussion, but it's going to be very uh, collegial and collaborative. Uh, and then I'm going to tell you there's going to be about 90 minutes a month outside of that where we're going to ask you to do things. So there's going to be a personal inventory or whether it's going to be um, maybe you're going to go visit somebody in the hospital or, or do something where it stretches you as a spiritual leader. And so I, I would put that as part of our invitation, that if you're a Christ follower and you're saying, you know what, I really want to take spiritual leadership and, and be serious about it, I challenge you to apply to that. It is something you need to apply to. If you get your emails from us, there's a link this week. If not, come see me after service, and I'll let you know how to do that. All right, as we continue also, the second part is the thing we offer every week, where we would invite those of you who maybe aren't spiritual leaders, but those that just need to to make a commitment to Christ. Um, If that's you, we'll invite you to come forward this morning.